Well, thank you so much, children, for blessing us today in the way that you have. It's been such a special time together in the Lord's presence today under your leadership. And thank you so very, very much. Thank you to all of our children's workers who have made this day so very, very special. Um, I want to begin today by asking you if you can guess who made this statement. Let me read it for you. Who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Probably some of you could guess that this statement was made by Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was probably the most well-known American astronomer. He became very famous through his television program, Cosmos. He was also an atheistic evolutionist. And this statement of his that you see on the screen is what unaided human reason concludes is our place in the universe. We are insignificant, humdrum, lost in space, and forgotten. Uh, very inspiring this morning, isn't it? You're glad you came to hear this. Let me share another statement with you from Carl Sagan. He one time said this, In all our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from somewhere else to save us from ourselves. It is up to us. How are we doing so far, by the way? Yeah, not, not too well. Yeah, not too well. You know, when you take this outlook that is the result of atheistic evolution, there are two outcomes. One is the outcome of existentialism. Existentialism says there is no meaning or ultimate purpose in the universe outside of the individual. Each of us must choose and make our own meaning during our tiny moment of time on this planet. There's nothing eternal to give us purpose. We each must decide that for ourselves. That's existentialism. Uh, this view also leads to another outcome which is known as nihilism. Nihilism essentially says life is meaningless and therefore nothing we do has ultimate significance. So if being a millionaire is what fulfills you, go for it. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, just uh, get out of life what you can. But on the other hand, nihilism says if getting high and stoned every weekend is what fulfills you, then that's your choice. Just don't hurt anybody else in the process. These are the inescapable conclusions of taking atheistic evolution to its logical end. Do you know when I was in college, I had a, an astronomy class? Can you believe this? My astronomy professor was a Christian in a secular college. As a matter of fact, when he retired from teaching, he became a pastor. 
Now, do you know when a Christian astronomer looks out at the same universe, he comes to the exact opposite conclusion? He knows that we are not a closed universe. There is someone out there, God. And he also knows that that God has a special plan for human beings through his son. In fact, while I was a student in that college where that Christian astronomer taught, he one day did a special planetarium presentation on the Star of Bethlehem. He went through all the options. You know what he concluded? The Star of Bethlehem was a miracle of God. That's a Christian astronomer. You see, what he understood and what we all know is that in Jesus Christ, we have the greatest meaning, the greatest purpose, the greatest hope, and the greatest reason for living. And all of God's people said this morning, Amen. Amen. Now this morning, I want us to see that wonderful truth again in one of the Messianic Psalms. Uh, We are looking during this Advent season at the Messianic Psalms. They are psalms that prophesy things about the coming Savior. And I've entitled this series in the Messianic Psalms, What Child Is This? Christ Foretold in the Psalms. And today we're going to look at Psalm 8. Now we're going to see two things. We're going to see the greatness of God. And then we're going to see the amazing plan He has for us and how Christ fits in. And so would you take your Bibles and turn to the middle of your Bibles to the Psalms. Find Psalm 8. It is in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 848. And let's look at this amazing God and this amazing plan and how Christ fits in through the Christmas story. Listen to what Psalm 8 says to us O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Haven't we seen that today? My, how that fits today. Because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man, that you would even care for him. You made him a little lower than God, says the NIV text note, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. And the psalmist has to go back to what he said in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, when I think about all of this, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice here that David begins this psalm by talking about the greatness of God. And he tells us that God reveals his awesome kingship in creation. Uh, In verse 1, a number of the terms that are used here are kingly terms. Uh, they were the kinds of terms that uh, would have been understood and, uh, and used of an earthly king in a kingdom. Uh, when 
David begins, verse 1, the Hebrew wording is actually, uh, O Yahweh Adunenu. And Adunenu comes from the Hebrew word Adon, which means master or ruler. One of the very first English translations, the Coverdale translation, actually translated this governor, O Lord, our governor. What is interesting is that it is in the plural. Uh, Adunenu is uh, in the plural, and that is a plural of majesty. Uh, Whenever the Queen of England will address her subjects, she will refer to herself as we in her speech. What she is using there is a plural of majesty. What she means is, I am the Queen of England, and no one else has my exalted status. Now when the Lord uses the same plural of majesty for himself, he is saying that he is the absolute king, and no one else has his status. Notice also that verse 1, he says that he is majestic. The word there means great. It has the idea of the impressiveness or the awesomeness of a great king. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, the queen of Sheba visited Solomon. And the Bible says that she saw how majestic Solomon's rule and reign was. In fact, his majesty was so great... The Bible says in 1 Kings 10.5, the queen of Sheba was overwhelmed at his majesty. Now that's what God wants. God wants us to be overwhelmed with his majesty. So look at what this psalm tells us that he has done. There are two things in verses 1 and 2 that he has done. First of all, his kingship is revealed in the earth and over the heavens. And then secondly, verse 2, his kingship is revealed in using the weakest humans. Let's spend our time here this morning on the first one. Notice verse 1, that God says that his majesty is found in his name in all the earth. God's name refers to two things, his reputation as a very, very great king and a revelation of his nature. So when God makes known his name, Yahweh, in verse 1, what he is doing is revealing his kingship. You may know that Yahweh means the self-existent one, and it stresses his absolute sovereignty as king. Now, I want you to notice very carefully the extraordinary thing he has done. In verse 1, the word name and the word glory are parallel. Look at it with me. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Then in the second line it says, You have set your glory above the heavens. Those two words, name and glory, are parallel So that God is saying something very significant to us. God has taken his glory, his impressive majesty, and he has imparted it to his creation. His name as the awesome king permeates both earth and heaven, revealing him. 
Do you know the Apostle Paul in in Romans chapter 1 has a little commentary on this? Uh, Let me go there for just a moment and read for you verse 20 of Romans 1, which is a commentary on Psalm 8 and verse 1. And listen to what God says in Romans 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, and here they are, his eternal nature and his divine power have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So God has revealed the awesomeness of his kingship in this creation that we look at. Uh, Let's look at an example this morning from earth. And then we'll look at an example from the heavens. Uh, All of us know that uh, one of our most beloved hymns is America the Beautiful. The first line of that hymn starts off this way. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. Now this image, or one similar, is what the author of America the Beautiful saw when she wrote that line in that beloved hymn. By the way, is this not awesome this morning? Awesome. Now if I would ask you this question, what do you see? Here's an answer that you may give to me. I see a majestic mountain with purple hue above the plain. And if you gave me that answer, you would be wrong. Because the right answer is, we are seeing the impressive majesty of Yahweh, the great king. That's what we are seeing. This great mountain with its purple hue above the fruited plain is God's majestic name in all the earth. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. Can I say to you this morning, the greatest tragedy of evolution is looking at the world And coming up with a theory of origins. The purpose of creation is to look at the world and come to the originator who is God. And what the Lord is saying to us is only those who have come to know his name in a personal way, Yahweh, the awesome God, when they look out at this majestic creation, will see God in that creation. Let's look at an example this morning from the heavens. Because verse 1 says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Here's an example from the heavens this morning. This is an imagery, a picture of the Andromeda galaxy. It is a neighboring galaxy. In fact, it is in the same cluster of galaxy 
as our galaxy, the Milky Way. By the way, is this not awesome this morning? Yes, it is. It's awesome. Now, let me share with you um, a few details about this galaxy. In distance, it is 2.5 million light years from our galaxy. One light year is 6 trillion miles. So this galaxy in distance from us is 2.5 million times 6 trillion miles away. How awesome. In diameter, it is 260,000 light years across. Now remember, a light year is 6 trillion miles. So to get from one side of this galaxy to the other is 260,000 times 6 trillion miles. The number of stars in this galaxy, are you ready? 1 trillion. The Milky Way has only about 200 to 400 billion stars. I say only, right? We're in an itsy-bitsy galaxy compared to Andromeda. And the brightness of this galaxy? On a moonless night, you can see this with the naked eye. That's how bright it is, yet it is 2.5 million light years away. Now, if I were to ask you again the same question, what do you see? You might say, I see an amazing galaxy the astronomers have named Andromeda. You would be wrong. What we see is the impressive majesty of Yahweh, the great king above the heavens. That's what we see. And all God's people said again, Amen. Now there's something very interesting we cannot miss here. When David says, you have set your glory above the heavens, verse 1, the word above can mean two things. It can mean upon the heavens, which we have been describing, that God has taken his glory And he has imparted some of that glory to the heavens. Or it can mean over the heavens. So we could read the verse, you have set your glory over the heavens as ruler. Here's what the Lord is saying to us. No matter how vast is this universe, God is vaster still. He is over the heavens. In fact, I want you to notice that's the point of verse 3. Drop down in your Bibles to verse 3 and notice how he makes this point that God is vaster than this universe we see. Look what he says. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. God is so much vaster than his creation. The Bible is saying that these objects of awesome wonder are like tiny little toys in his hand. Uh, David and his readership, and for much of known history, 
uh, could not visualize this in the way that we can today. We know that God does not have a physical hand. But if we were to visualize what verse 3 is telling us about the vastness of God, it would look something like this. God is so much vaster and over all that he has made. By the way, no wonder in verse 4, David asked this question. Look at the question. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? No wonder he asked that question. Let's put it in perspective here this morning. Uh, Carl Sagan would often talk about how we occupy this little blue dot in this little tiny corner of this vast universe we seem forgotten in. A number of years ago when the spacecraft Voyager 1 was traveling to the outer reaches of the solar system, at 3.7 billion miles away, it took a picture of our planet in the Milky Way. Let me share that picture with you this morning. There it is. Do you see that little dot in that little uh, sort of um, cylinder of a cloud? That's the little blue dot that Carl Sagan said was so uh, insignificant in our vast universe. That's a picture taken from 3.7 billion miles away. You know what some wise guy did? Some wise guy put this arrow pointing to it and put up these words. That's us, all of us. Makes us feel pretty tiny and insignificant, doesn't it? In this vast place that is our home. And I look at this and I say, maybe Carl Sagan was right. Maybe we are insignificant. Maybe we are lost. Maybe we are forgotten. Or as he said, we live on the shores of a cosmic ocean. Doesn't that just sound profound? It's full of baloney, but it sounds profound. In fact, that's where this psalm takes such an amazing turn. And that's where Jesus comes into this psalm. Because David moves from considering the great kingship of God revealed in our universe to sharing with us uh, an equally amazing, amazing truth that God here reveals his amazing plan for humans. This is his plan for you and for me. Let's take a look together for just a moment at what God's intention for us was. As we look at verses 3 through 8, here's what we find that God has done for us. Number one, God thinks and cares for humans because we are in his image. Look at verses 4 and, and 5 again. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Now, the expected answer to that question 
is that God does not think one whit for us as puny human beings in this vast solar system and vast universe that he has made. But David means the exact opposite. In fact, the tenses of the verbs in verse 4 are what are known as imperfects in the Hebrew language, and they suggest a continual action so that verse 4 really means that God is constantly thinking about us as humans and he is constantly caring for us in this vast universe. His attention is on people like you and me. And if we say why, well notice verse 5. It's because we have been made in the image of God. You made him a little lower. The New International Version says than the heavenly beings. If you look at the text note, it says made a little lower than God. And that is probably the right translation here. David here is reflecting on Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God, the Hebrew word is Elohim. It's the same word here. And all throughout Genesis chapter 1, as Elohim reflects upon his creation, he says it is good. So David is reflecting on Genesis 1. So very likely here, the translation of Elohim should be God. You made him a little lower than God. Why does God have his attention on us as he does? Well, it's because we are made in his image. By the way, would you think about this? Evolution says we are a little higher than the animals. The Bible says we are made a little lower than God. Would you agree with me? It's a bad trade-off to accept being a little higher than the animals in the place of being made a little lower than God. Would you agree with me? Is that a bad trade-off? If, if you accept the fact that we are made just a little higher than the animals, we'll act like animals. But if you believe, as the Bible teaches, we are made a little lower than God, we will act like God. Does that make a huge difference? Yes, it does. Look at the second thing God has done. God has crowned us to be his co-rulers. Verse 5 says that we are crowned with glory and honor. Now would you please follow the psalm. In verse 1, God took some of his glory and he imparted it to the creation to show himself as the awesome king. Now the Bible says God has imparted some of his glory to us. He has made us in his image that we might now show his kingship. You know what David is doing here? David is reflecting back on Genesis chapter 1 and the crowning day of creation in verse in, in day 6. And listen to what God did, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. 
And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now notice what he said. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. That was God's amazing gift to us in his image. But then notice it doesn't end there. Uh, David goes on. And he says, God has put all of creation under our authority. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8 in Psalm 8. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Now here we have a divine commentary on what God said on day 6, now this time in verse 26 and the rest of verse 28. Let me read it for you from Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then God said, verse 28, in this command, Now that he gives the command to his first creation, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. My, what God has done. He has put his own glory upon us in his image. And now he has given to us his authority in the world. By the way, if you were to ask me in all the Bible what passage relays and sets forth the dignity and worth of man in the clearest way, I would say right here, Psalm 8. You cannot find a clearer statement about why we have dignity and why we have worth. It is because of what God has done in making us in his image just a little lower than him, of causing us to be co-rulers, and of giving us authority or dominion. That is why all mankind has dignity and worth. Many years ago, the president of uh, the Bible college that I went to, George Sweeting, was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. And he would say that there would be a lot of street bums in that downtown church who would wander into church and they would ask to see Pastor Moody. And uh, he would say, no use trying to explain to them that Pastor Moody had been dead for many, many years. No use trying to go into that. But he would sit down with them. Never forget his description of them. He said, here would set a man before him, bloodshot eyes, matted, disheveled hair, filthy, dirty clothes. Imagine the putrid breath of a street bum with with rotting teeth. Men who had never taken a bath, perhaps in, in weeks or months. And here's what Dr. Sweeting said would come to his mind as he would sit with this pitiful example of a man. He would say, This man 
was made in the image of God. He was made in the image of God. He was given dignity by his creator and was given the greatest purpose of all to represent the God who is above and beyond all that we see. And any thinking person has to ask the question, what happened? What happened? Well, you know the answer of the Bible. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin entered in at the fall and we have made a mess of God's original plan. Listen to how Pastor Warren Wiersbe describes the mess that we have made. He says, people today live more like slaves than rulers. So why aren't we living like kings? Because our first parents sinned and lost their crowns, forfeiting that glorious dominion. According to Romans 5, sin is reigning in our world. And death is also reigning. As I related last week, even Donald Trump, a man of great success who has achieved the American dream, even has to admit this. In a TV interview just a couple of weeks ago, he said, it really is an evil world. Wherever we turn in the world today, there is violence on every hand. And we have made a mess of God's plan. But is this where it ends? Does this end just in despair? Well, obviously no. The New Testament picks up on this. And it says this is where the Christmas story comes in. Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm. And what that means is what is said here is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so we we move from God's plan for us, which which we destroyed and have messed up because of sin, to how Christ is the answer who restores it. Let me just read for you point by point what Jesus has done, and then I'll invite you to go with me to the New Testament passages that show us that he has fulfilled what Psalm 8 is talking about. Look what he has done. He has become son of man in our image. He's now crowned with glory and honor as God intended for us and all things are now under his authority and so says the Bible it is in and through him that we recover what God intended for us let's turn to two passages would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 and I want you to notice how Christ fulfills the first two of God's plan for us. As I read these verses, you will see it very, very clear. He is now the Son of Man who came in our image, and through His death for our sins, His resurrection, and His ascension, He has now been crowned with glory and honor. And then we'll go to Ephesians 1, verse 20 and 
22, and we'll see how all things are now under his authority. Follow with me in Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5. And look how Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, and now notice Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, describing us, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Uh, Can everybody say this morning, boy, is that an understatement in the Bible? What a mess we have made of this world that was to be subject to us. Verse 9, but, isn't that one of the greatest buts in all the Bible? But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Verse 5 of Psalm 8, now crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 8, 5 and the second half, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 1. And notice after he died and rose and ascended, he is now enthroned. And all authority has been granted to him as he rules and reigns from the right hand of God. And one day he will come again in his second coming. And Ephesians 1, starting at verse 20. If you would start with me at verse 19 tells us that he is the great fulfiller of the authority we were to have. Ephesians 1.19 Speaking of God's incomparably great power for us who believe. He says that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, Psalm 8, verse 6, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything. In every way. Last Sunday, as we looked at Psalm 110, I drew three conclusions. And I have to draw those conclusions this morning. Let me give them to you again. Number one, Jesus must be who he said he was. See, the the great question everyone must ask as they read Psalm 8 and then they look at our world is who fits Psalm 8? Well, I don't fit it because I've messed it up. 
You don't fit it because you've messed it up. So who fits it? And the New Testament comes along and says, Christ is the one who fits it right to a T. He fits all the data of Psalm 8. This is not an accident. He must be who he claimed he was. Second conclusion we have to draw. The Bible is a divinely authored book. Ask me today, where would you go to try to decipher in a world like ours who we are, what God's plan is, how it got so messed up, and how it will be restored? Where else would you go? The only place that you can find that answer is as we come to the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, and we see how they fit together. They tell us who we are. They tell us what God's plan is. They tell us why the world is in such a mess and then how it is going to be restored. No other book is like this book. And then finally, The only thing that makes sense is trusting Christ as Savior and following Him as Lord. It's the only thing that makes sense in this world. Let's bow our hearts together for just a moment. And before we sing our final song and we are concluded for today, I want to ask again where you are with the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that God has brought you here by a divine appointment, that you might hear his plan and desire for you. And maybe you're not sure where you stand today. And I would love for you to come to know Christ in all his fullness today. You could say something like this from your heart to God. Lord, I may not be like a disheveled bum that pastor described a few moments ago. But I know that I have a self-centered heart. And I know that I look out essentially for number one. And I realize, Lord, that I'm lost. But I believe that Christ is the answer. I believe that He is who the Bible says that He claimed to be. I believe He came into this world to to represent me. He died on the cross that my sins might be paid for. He rose again that I might have a home in heaven. And would you say to God, O Lord... Today I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own selfish way and I'm turning to you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me as you died that I might be forgiven. Give me eternal life as you rose that I might have life everlasting. And make me a child of God. And because you have said in your word. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
this very day I call upon you, believing that you will save me if my heart is right from this day forward. I will follow you as my Lord. For those of us who know Christ, the Advent candle today is the candle of joy. And the only way that we can truly know the joy of the Lord in our lives is as we see the greatness of God, his wonderful plan, and the glory of Christ shining to us in his word. And so today, as we live in a world that is so joyless, is so mundane in their own business, may we as believers ask God to Lift our eyes above our own horizons. And may we find the joy of the Lord that he intended us to have. May we ask the Lord to move us from this place and in a world where the Christmas celebration now starts before Thanksgiving. And you go into the stores and you haven't even gotten to Thanksgiving and you're already being with the materialism of this age. May we shine forth the joy of the Lord into a world that so greatly needs Him. We leave this place today knowing the true meaning of Christmas and seeking to be Christ's messengers to all around us. O blessed Lord, encourage our hearts today Lift our eyes up above our own struggles and problems. Help us to see the grandeur of our God and his plan and our Christ who is ruling and reigning, ready to come back to receive us unto himself. And may we live with all the great purpose and meaning that only a Christian can have. We'll thank you and praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen.